0: Good morning. 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 Let's take a look at our announcements. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7, verse 9. The memorial service for Suzanne Riffle will be held here at the church Saturday, October the 10th. So if you want to change that in your bulletin, it's Saturday, October the 10th at 3 p.m., um, following the service, there will be a luncheon in the fellowship hall, meat and salad provided, and we're asking you to uh, provide casserole and dessert. Offerings in the offering box, Andrea's number there, days of praise, and accent facts are here for you. I got a note here, that's, that's the Suzanne note. Okay, if I missed anything... I have a new grandbaby don 't ask me why avonlea virginia we have We have uh, a lot of names to remember that's, that 's that 's number eight it 's avonlea like avon lee avonlea and she 's beautiful so <laughs> um, all right we have a responsive reading this morning uh, psalm. 145. I don't have a page in the, in the Trinity, and I don't have a Trinity, so I need one. Thank you. 838 in the Trinity. Psalm 145. Let's stand together. <clears throat> I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever.
1: Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever.
0: Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love.
2: The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made.
0: All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you.
2: They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might.
0: So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom.
3: Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all
0: generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made.
2: The Lord holds all those who call him and shall there all come.
0: The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made.
1: The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth.
0: He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them.
4: The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy.
0: My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we meet together. Phil, can I ask you to open today?
4: Protect us this hour, Lord. Be with us, grant us peace, give us wisdom, and let us seek your face in this message. Father, we pray in the name of Christ our Savior.
0: Amen. Remain standing.
5: Turn to number two in your brown hymnal this morning. Number two. <clears throat> two in the in the red, in the
2: red,
5: in the red. Right I said Brown Jared just wasn't listening to me <laughs> and he did the right thing I'm sorry number two in the red there that's the one you're playing sorry <laughs> let's try again <clears throat> And new things up here to see if I can breathe better and see better and this week breathe better but I can't see because I'm all fogged up so do we have a favorite hymn Dale was that a hand <laughs> I can see my book this way but I have a hard time seeing you guys oh. yes Dale <laughs> um, 284 in the brown in the brown Two eight four, in the brown, 284 in the brown. Did you tell me your reason and I already forgot? Um, no, I didn't tell you
3: yet. I think okay. it's just uh Christians try to their lives, are the
5: Amen. All right, two eight four in the brown. <laughs>
0: Scripture reading this morning is taken from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, and we'll be reading 1 through 13, that's page 1563 in the Pew Bible.
5: Take your red Trinity hymnals again and turn to number 19 in the red. 19.
1: Our text this morning is Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. For the past couple of weeks, we have been examining the regulative principle of worship as outlined in the theological documents of our Sovereign Grace churches. The regulative principle of worship in Christian theology teaches that the public worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed by or given by example in the Bible. In other words, it is the belief that God institutes in Scripture whatever He requires for worship in the church, and everything else should be avoided. You say, well, don't all churches believe that? Well, no. We read a text today in Mark 7 where, uh, in fact, the Jews were following their traditions rather than the Scriptures, and they were elevating their traditions over the Scriptures. Should be the other way around. We've been looking at this whole idea of how to worship. We studied first the sin of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests who took it upon themselves to use unauthorized fire, the scripture says, in the burning of incense is part of the Jewish worship. The fire was to come from the altar. Previously, they had done this, so they knew the protocol. But they did their own thing on this occasion, and they paid for it. They added worship, added to worship what they had not authorized. And you know what happened to them. They were struck dead by God for so doing. Fire came from that altar and consumed them. They were adding to worship Last week we looked at the sin of Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, reaching out and touching the ark of God which was in danger of tumbling from the cart being used to transport the ark from one location to another. Thus they were subtracting from God's requirements of worship because the ark was not supposed to be put on a cart pulled by oxen. I mean, that's very precarious in itself when you think about it. But the ark was designed for transport. You remember there were two gold sockets on each side of the ark and through those sockets they would put poles and the Levites or priests would carry the ark on those poles and the ark itself was covered so that it was not visible to the actual eyes of the people but they just did their own thing they, they thought they could do and God struck them dead because of that both of these incidents in worship violated the regulative principle of scripture one added to God's rules of worship the other subtracted from God's rule both of them were presumptuous not faith presumption not faith Now, some have thought that this regulative principle is too tough or too old covenant to define worship in the new covenant age, our age. And so they devise what is called the normative principle. That's what we talk about this morning. And again, we are bound to the scriptures, not the traditions of men. So it's scripture over tradition Not tradition over scripture. That's how people get into trouble with God. As we come to our study, let's ask for his blessing. Father, send your spirit upon us to be our enlightener and our teacher. Use the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, the Bible says. May the spirit use that sword to convict us, cut us, scalpel, cut out the poison, the sinful thoughts, And at the same time bring healing to our souls. We need healing. Our country's in great turmoil. Some of our families are in turmoil. There's sickness. There's all kinds of problems that are going on. Because we're sinful people living in a sinful world. And we need your intervention. We need a Savior. And you are that Savior for us, O Lord. So declared in the scriptures. Bless and honor yourself today. Glorify your name. And we pray that you will encourage us and strengthen us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text is Mark chapter 7, and we're looking at the normative principle of worship. This is a little theology this morning. I don't normally do a lot of theology in terms of actual scriptures. But when we need to, we need to. And this is one occasion where we do. What is the normative principle of worship? Well, from our confession of faith, the normative principle of worship teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship so long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. Hmm. In other words, there must be agreement with the general practice of the church And no prohibition in scripture for whatever is done in worship. End statement. I'm sure you can see that this is a pretty serious shift in emphasis concerning worship. From the regulative principle. The regulative principle says this. The worship of God should include those and only those elements that are instituted, commanded, or appointed By command or example in the Bible. That's what we follow. Whereas the normative principle asserts, well, if it's not prohibited uh, in Scripture, then it's permissible. So long as it agrees with the church consensus. So the church consensus is put over the Scriptures. What do you think? Let's take a vote. Well, we all voted in favor. So this is good. Doesn't matter what the scripture says. Church authority over the scriptures. Say, who does that? Well, many churches do that. The regulative principle is based on sola scriptura. The scripture alone, which is one of the leading principles of the Reformation. Let me read it. The Holy Scripture is the only the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's Article 1 of the Confession, Paragraph 1. And Paragraph 6 says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures to which nothing is to be added at any time, either by new revelations of the Spirit or by the traditions of men. End quote. Now I have to ask the question, why would the Reformers lean so heavily upon the principle of sola scripture, the scriptures alone as our only rule of Christian conduct? Why would they do that? Well, it is because in searching the scriptures, the reformers, Luther, Swingley, Melanchthon, Calvin, to name four, and others, discovered that the Church of Rome had elevated both the church and tradition above the scriptures. And in so doing, they invented and ordained as doctrine things that are not found in the scriptures. And they said, that's okay. The church is over the scriptures, so the church can have its own doctrine. And the reformers said, no, no, you got that backwards. The scripture should dictate to the church, not the church dictating to the scripture. But they held out for that particular viewpoint. And so the worship of Mary was introduced to the church the sinless conception of Mary. These are not found in the scripture. Purgatory. Indulgences. What are indulgences? The ticket. You buy a ticket to help get you out of hell. The mass. The ongoing re sacrificing, re crucifying of Jesus week after week. That's all from tradition, not in the scripture. So, the question comes. Does the church define the scriptures, or does the scriptures define the church? And Rome said, "Oh, well, the church defines the scriptures." You will recall that Jesus locked horns with the Pharisees on this, on his, on this, in his day, over this very issue. It's found in the text, Matthew, Mark seven. Let me read it for you. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash They observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live up according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Mark 7 first nine verses, our text. That was the problem. What do we live our lives by? How do we worship God? Do we go according to human traditions that are over the scripture? Or do we have the scriptures being over human traditions? Well, there's a problem in the normative principle. The bottom line is this. What is approved or practiced in the worship of God becomes a matter of personal preference or taste, so long as no prohibition can be found in the Scripture. Now, just think about that. That's the problem of the normative principle. Let me read it again. What is approved or practiced in the worship of God becomes a matter of personal preference, personal taste so long as no prohibition can be found in the scripture. End of quote. I want you to think of this. Although the Bible has a list of do's and don'ts in scripture, when it comes to worshiping God, more, much more, is left unsaid. So, if the unsaid becomes the basis for worship and what can be done, it opens the door to the imaginations and the inventions of men. It's like saying, anything goes. So long as it does not violate a clear prohibition in scripture, we should be allowed to do it. We find churches today that operate on this principle. Charismatic sensationalism, contemporary worship, seeker sensitive programs, appeals to felt needs, dance, drama, rock bands, etc., have all ridden to popularity on the mantra well, God doesn't prohibit this. There are professing conservative churches in America which have bars built into their buildings, movie theaters in their buildings, coffee houses, and so on, every bit as guilty of Jesus' condemnation of the people of his day when he accused them, saying, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Does that sound like Jesus would agree with the things that are going on in some of our contemporary churches? You'll find those words of Christ in Matthew 21, verse 12 and 13. It's not fundamentally different than what the writer of the book of Judges observed. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Judges twenty one verse twenty five. What they did in the political realm, they also did in the spiritual realm, idols in their homes, intermarrying with pagans around them and so forth. And the whole thing started to fall apart. Oh, they even did more. They God had warned them, break down their altars. That is the idols, you see. Smash their sacred stones, burn their ashtoreth poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, wipe out their names from the places from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Wow. Not just don't worship their idols, but don't worship your God in their way with their methodology. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go and there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. And when you have vowed to give your financial offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, there in the presence of the Lord your God You and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have. Put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we are doing here today. Everyone as he sees fit. Deuteronomy 12 verse 3 and following. So there was a transition, a change. Place of worship was set up. You're not to do your own thing. You are to follow the Regulations of the Holy Scriptures. Human nature, being what it is, the normative principle, do whatever is not prohibited, opens up a whole can of worms of worship. The checks and balances of the Scripture are not only found in the specific commands of the Bible, but in the principles that we learned two weeks ago. Moses said to Aaron, his brother, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. There's the two H's. Holy and honored. That's how you're to treat me in worship. So that doesn't sound like everything goes. And we read when Moses told him, this truth, Aaron remained silent. Because he wasn't doing that. And he was in the wrong. Leviticus 10, verse 3. The sad commentary on today's churchgoers and leaders alike is that they cannot discern what's holy and they have the audacity to believe that everything they do demonstrates honor and respect for God simply because... In their mind, what God has not forbidden, particularly, must be acceptable and approved by God. See the approach. Why well, I, I look in the Scripture and I can't see that God prohibited this or that, so I guess it's okay. It's as we studied last week with David's appeal to the people in transforming, transporting, rather, the ark in. The cart drawn by oxen. We read the whole assembly agreed to do this. I'm reading scripture. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. 1 Chronicles 13 verse 4. Well, it seemed right to all the people, but it was wrong. Because God had specifically said that the cart was to be, the ark was to be transported on the priest's shoulders using rods that went through particular sleeves on the side, each side of the ark that enabled them as priests to carry it. But no, they didn't want to do that. They just stuck the box in a cart, drawn by oxen. And you can just see that thing going down the road, rocking back and forth. Dirt road, pulled by oxen. It was inevitable that it was going to tip over. And it did tip over. And Uzzah reached out to study it and God struck him dead because it was to be wholly and honorably transported and they were doing their own thing. So in that case, what seemed right had a specific command of God prohibiting it. The ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. Well, where would they get the idea of putting it in a cart? From the Philistines? From the pagans? You Remember, they sent the cart back to... They had captured the cart, ark, in a, in a battle. And they sent it back to Israel on an ox cart. Say, well, okay, yeah, well, okay, that's where they got... Well, yeah, but that's the Philistines. They didn't know God; they didn't have the Scriptures, and God allowed that to happen. And but that wasn't that didn't become the rule then, just because God allowed it on that occasion. These were pagan people that didn't know any better, but Israel knew better, or we would think. This is what happens when the seems-right crowd overrides this is what the Lord commands. And then, like David, we are aghast when God judges us as he did with Uzzah striking him dead. Wow. The normative principle is too broad. It doesn't give due caution to Solomon's wisdom, which is this. There's a way that seems right to a man But in the end, it leads to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and joy may end in grief. The faithless will be fully repaid for their ways, and the good man rewarded for his. A simple man believes anything, (laughs) but a prudent man gives thought to his steps, and the wise man fears the Lord and shuns evil, but a fool is hot-headed and reckless. Proverbs fourteen, verse twelve, and following. So are we going to be wise or foolhardy and reckless. It's interesting to observe that these those churches which follow the regulative principle that is that Scripture must command or approve or model are the grace churches. Whose appreciation for the authority of the scriptures undergirds all that is done in worship. Whereas those churches which oscillate towards the normative principle, anything goes if it's not prohibited, they are the churches where God's word in preaching and practice takes a back seat to what? To entertainment styles that appeal to the whims of the people. And we have a radical contrast between the two in our own age now secondly the new covenant is identical to the old covenant God the new covenant God is identical to the old covenant God Say, why would you put that in there because God is one not two the Jews had that right God is one not two or three or four or whatever, if you get into the multi-pagan cultures. Perhaps as we have studied the sin of Nadab and Abihu, both priests, both sons of Aaron, the priest, who were struck dead by God for offering unauthorized fire in their worship. And then there's the sin of David in transporting the ark of God on a cart that Uzzah reached out to stabilize when the oxen stumbled. He was also struck dead. Perhaps, perhaps I say, the notion may start to creep into your mind. Well, eh, that was the God of the Old Testament. But we Christians live in the age of grace. We, we live in the age of grace, not law. That being so, God does not deal with sins of worship in the same severe way in which he dealt with these people in the past. It's a new age and a new day and things are more gracious for the worshiper in our day. Well, I remember reading in a biography of Charles Dickens whose wonderful stories include The Christmas Carol, we get that every December, Oliver Twist, our men remember reading that Mr. Dickens did not like the God of the Old Testament. He wrote a little story, Bible storybook for his children called The Life of Our Lord so that his children, he had ten kids, would become familiar with Jesus Christ. And he often read the story to them. And when his children left home, he gave each of them a New Testament, though not an entire copy of the Bible. And to one of those children he wrote, and we have it in history today, I put a New Testament among your books, For the very same reason and with the very same hope that made me write an easy account of it for you when you were a little child, because it's the best book that ever was or will be known in the world. The life of our Lord most clearly expresses Dickens' religious disposition. He respected Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, who practiced what Dickens' So desperately wanted to find in humanity. Jesus loved all people. He rubbed shoulders with social outcasts. He rebuked the wealthy elitists. He severely condemned hypocrisy. Dickens was all for that. I mean if there ever was a man who could gain Dickens utmost respect and favor. Christ could and did. But. Dickens would not promote the God of the Old Testament because he believed that depiction of God to be harsh, censorious, judgmental, maybe even cruel at times. There were a number of people in his day that made such distinctions between Jehovah of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New Testament, not realizing that The self-disclosure of Jesus in John 8, verse 58, where he says of himself, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I am is the translation of the Hebrew, Jehovah, the eternally present one. Jesus' audience got the message, But they didn't like what they heard. Verse 59 of that chapter says, At this they picked up stones to stone him because Jesus hid himself, but Jesus, excuse me, hid himself, slipping away through the temple grounds. No doubt what disturbed Dickens in his day was his perception that a God of love could not mete out such terrible judgments on sinners as is found in the Old Testament. His way of handling this seeming dichotomy was to ignore or downplay the God of the Old Testament while exalting Jesus Christ of the New Testament. He did not see that God is one, not two. The Jehovah of the Old Testament, Jesus says, I was him. I am. I was that. God. God is one, not two. That brings us then to the case of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Dickens would have rallied around the compassion expressed towards the poor and the needy in Acts 4, verse 34 and 35. There were no needy persons among them, among the church, for from time to time those who had lands or houses, sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would distribute it to anyone who had need. He liked that. Taking care of the poor and the needy. Yes. But just two verses later, the case of Ananias and Sapphira cannot be ignored. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira... Also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles feet. And Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? Oh, and after it was sold, wasn't the money yours at your disposal? So what made you think of doing such a wicked thing? See, what he did is he gave part of the money. That's okay. That was not Ananias' sin. If he wanted to give part, and keep back some of it for himself, he could do that. But he gave part of the money and then pretended that he had given it all. And he was caught in a lie. And that's why judgment fell upon him. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money still yours at your disposal? See, God wasn't saying to you you had to give it all or nothing. Peter went on, what made you think you could do such a thing? You have not lied to men but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. And great fear seized all who had heard it. And then the young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him off and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in and she didn't know what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who carried your husband out the door will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And we read great fear seized the whole church. And all who heard about these events, Acts five, the first eleven verses. You say, "Well, this is pretty harsh." It is, but they, they were lying against the Holy Spirit. You see, they were, and that was before all of the church. They got caught in the lie, and God judged them, brethren. Let us not think that there is any difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament or between God the Father and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who also is mentioned in Acts 5 account. There's only one God, not two. And if men think otherwise, they are mistaken, and maybe even duped into thinking that things are more lenient in worship under Jesus than they were under the regulations of worship laid down in the Old Testament law. The same God demands the same Honor and respect, those two things, whether manifest as the Son of God or as the Spirit of God. And what about the case of the Corinthian church? Remember the celebration and remembrance of the Lord's table? That's part of Christian worship. Paul writes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come, 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 26, as often is not identical to do this often, but it is the NIV translation, as often for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. First Corinthians 11, verse 26. But there was something radically amiss at the Lord's table when the Corinthian church gathered to celebrate. Paul told them, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead of the other person without waiting for anybody. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. 1 Corinthians 11, verse... 20 and following. So what was going on? They're gathering to celebrate the Lord's table. They did things a little differently than we do. They had a meal first and then celebrated the Lord's table. We usually have the Lord's table and then have a meal afterwards. On those Sundays that we do that. But when they had the meal, what were they doing? They were eating like gluttons. Yeah, each one was supposed to bring something to eat and share, But the poor can't come up with the opulence that the rich can come up with. So the wealthy were bringing all these luscious, wonderful gifts and then eating those gifts by themselves. They weren't even sharing with the poor that were coming to the same table. Humiliating the poor. And God judged them for that. Can you believe that? Coming in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus, his crossword, the death, burial, resurrection, coming to that ordinance with such selfish greed in their heart that exhibited itself around the table. Hogging the food, getting drunk, and the poor, you guys go over, sit over there somewhere, You don't get any of our food and that's the way things were going. On those communion Sundays when we have a dinner here at the church we do the Lord's table first and then we dismiss to fellowship hall for our dinner. The Corinthians were following the pattern laid out by Jesus the night of his crucifixion Passover dinner first then he He initiated what we know as the Lord's table. What was the problem? Well, at the dinner, they were sinning against the have-nots by hogging all their own food and not sharing with the poor who had little or nothing to eat. And they were drinking more wine than they should have so that by the time they got to the celebration of the Lord's table, they were inebriated. Can you imagine that? Unbelievable. And they thought that was going to be acceptable. So they came to the worship, remembrance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In, the, in that state, the price paid for their sin with, with obvious and blatant sin towards the poor and the needy and disrespect for God in a most unholy state of selfishness And drunkenness. And Paul could not commend them for this. No, he did the opposite. He rebuked them strongly, accusing them of, and let me read it for you despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. How can you do that with your brothers and sisters? How how can you treat them that way? Well, they didn't bring enough food. That's because they're poor. You should be happy that you are gifted by God to have wealth. To have a full pantry. Where's the love? They were doing their own thing, right? (laughs) They did not see anything wrong with their conduct. And somehow they distanced themselves from the other in the church during this ordinance. They did not consider God's reaction. Paul goes on to tell them God's reaction. What was it? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28 and following. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why, you Corinthians... That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Doesn't mean uh, going to bed at night. It means they died. Your desecration of the Lord's table is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. But, Paul goes on, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. And if anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. In other words, the Lord's table is not feast day for you to stuff your face and rob the poor of the same ordinance what all this tells me is that God had been watching God had been watching God had taken note more God was doing something about this terrible sinful conduct in worship people were smitten with weakness and sickness and a number of which never recovered they died God was disciplining the church of Corinth as he had done with Israel in the Old Covenant for their sinful worship. The God of the New Covenant is the same God of the Old Covenant operating according to his own standard, which is the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 echoed by Paul in Romans 2 verse 9 where he says there will be terrible time of distress and trouble on every human being who does evil first to the Jew then for the Gentile but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good first to the Jew then to the Gentile for God does not show favoritism end quote what's he saying he's saying the new covenant God is the same as the old covenant God he does not change We ought to be thankful that he doesn't. Brings me then in closing to worshiping God under his requirements. How do we do that? Well, for one thing, we have new technology, don't we? Is it permissible under the regulative principle to have a TV monitor in the auditorium? We have one, a sound booth. Back of the auditorium, we have that too so that it can amplify my voice. Tape recorder to archive messages for future use, we have that too. An internet service to broadcast the morning worship, to shut-ins, the disabled, people at distant localities, we have that too. May we have church buildings, pulpits, hymnals, electronic Yamaha pianos, an organ or other musical instruments, air conditioning, a furnace in the winter, flush toilets, electric lights, padded pews. None of these things, none of them are commanded in the scripture. None of them. So how do we account for them or are we in violation of the regulative principle of worship because these things are not addressed in scripture I'll have a specific message later on the idea of worship and music and worship but for now just I want you to look at just the elements of worship versus the circumstances of worship I want to make that distinction this morning so that we're clear the elements of worship What are the elements of worship? Well, those are the essentials. The things directed by God in the scriptures that are to be part of our worship. The reading of the scriptures to direct our thoughts towards God. The preaching of and listening to the word of God, which is what you're doing now. The Bible being our rule of thought. Singing with grace and gladness in our hearts in praise to God and in thankfulness for his goodness. Prayer with thankful hearts. The receiving of tithes and offerings, our offering box, to support God's work through the church. The observance of the ordinances of Christian baptism in the Lord's table and we do that on a monthly basis. These are the elements of worship, the non-negotiable items governed by the regulative principle of scripture. All these things are commanded by God in the scriptures. That's why they're not negotiable. And we err when we start messing with the essentials that some churches have done. But over against the essentials in worship there are the circumstances of worship these are the functional aspects of worship which enable it to occur like what well a place for a meeting we have a building so well yeah you need a building no you don't you know how many christians are sitting this morning, this hour, in a foreign land on a patch of dirt, maybe with a lean-to canvas on top, and that's their worship center. They don't have pews, they have boards. They don't have organs and pianos. They have drums, stringed instruments. So, the elements of worship don't change, but the circumstances do. The place of meeting, the time of day, whether you're going to use a pew or a chair or just sit on the ground, musical instruments, are you going to have a piano? Yes or no? What kind? Are you going to use TV monitors, hymnals, computers, soundboards, equipment in a sound room, indoor plumbing? The list is practically endless. But all circumstances will vary from country to country, from season to season, from place to place. I mean, think about this. How silly would it be to insist on a furnace for churches in Africa? But again, they might like air conditioning if electricity were available. Oh, and if they had electricity, they might be able to have A pump down inside a well to pull water up instead of having to carry things by buckets. I remember one of our missionaries asked for that. Do you remember that? We raised money so they could have a well. They had the well, I I mean, so they could put an electric pump down in there. The principle is this. All circumstances must facilitate and serve the elements of worship, the essentials. The circumstances serve the essentials. And they must never rise to the same status as the elements of worship, the must-haves of worship. People can sing praise to God without instruments. They can. They do. Preachers can preach without pulpits, without sound amplification. Done it for many years. People can sit on benches or sit on the ground to listen. See, what we think are essentials really aren't sometimes. Nor may we introduce things that are not essentials that we do not find in Scripture which negate or compromise the elements of worship. And that's where we get into well, anything goes if you want to do it. Dance, drama, rock bands and churches and so forth whatever. Ask the question, is this and then you put whatever it is you're going to ask, is this whatever essential for worship? Governed by the regulative principle, commanded by God, is it essential? Or is this and again whatever you want to put in the parenthesis is this a circumstance of worship not essential an aid a facilitator for corporate worship but not essential for example having air conditioning for warm weather you don't need that now we have it I'm thankful to have it don't knock I'm not knocking the air conditioning But for many years when I was here, there was no air conditioning. That's okay. You need electricity to worship? How many remember the very, very bad thunderstorm we had here some years back that took out not just the electricity in our building... But the whole neighborhood. And we were sitting here in the dark. Did we say, oh, my. Lord, what are you up to? We're trying to worship. And you took out all the electricity. I guess we'll go home. We didn't do that. We stayed right here in the dark. And completed our worship service. You don't need electricity to worship. It's nice. Not essential. How about indoor plumbing? No, we're really getting personal, right? <laughs> My first church is in Pennsylvania. We didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse and a path. You say, boy, you're really from the hokey part of Pennsylvania. Well, Pennsylvania is very rural. Back then, it was more rural. The choice was are you going to gather and worship God and have worship service and praise Him and learn the Scriptures and sing hymns in Him, or are you not because you don't have indoor plumbing? We went for the essential. Do you see? What was commanded. You don't need AC, you don't need electricity, you don't need indoor plumbing. You know what our church did in Pennsylvania without AC when I was growing up as a kid? We had cardboard fans. You know, think of this as being like a fan. Stapled to a wooden stick. And they were handed out to people as they came to church. That was your air conditioning. But we still met. We didn't have air conditioning. And our auditorium was five times the size of this. And 300 people. No air. But we still got together and still worshipped. Because that is a circumstance, not an essential. What should be our goal? Well, it should be to enforce the elements of worship, the preaching and teaching of God's word, prayer, giving of tithes and offerings. And it must also be flexible when it comes to the circumstances of worship. Because if we make our circumstances the model for everybody else, There's going to be trouble for our missionaries and so on. They don't have buildings to meet in. They're not sitting on pews this morning. They're on the ground. Or on a bench. There's no air conditioning. But they're worshiping the same God in Africa, South America, that we support. Places like that as we are today. We praise the Lord for the comforts we have, but they're not essential. and when the church of the new testament was persecuted what did they do they headed for the hills and worshiped in the woods not exactly convenient not very nice as far as on rain or snow times but that's what they did the essentials they maintained the circumstances changed. Help us to get your head straight, Lord. Help us. Get our heads straight so that we know uh, exactly where we should be. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. Bless thee for it. We thank you and praise you that you keep the, keep us straight. Please also keep us humble. We en- endeavor to worship you as you require. The essentials, yes. And they are found in their word, the word, the word of God. We don't have to guess. You want us to meet together to pray, to sing, to glorify you in word and song, to hear the preaching of your word, to love, Lord, one another, to celebrate the ordinances on a regular basis. And so, Lord, the essentials are spelled out for us. And our circumstances might change. I know for some of our elderly and elderly and sickly together that they don't make it out to worship services anymore or very rarely. Why? Because their circumstances have changed. And so we're thankful for being able to broadcast uh, the, the programs as necessary. A new thing, wonderful thing. To be able to broadcast the word of God. How long we can do that in our country. I don't know. But I'm thankful that we can. Now bless us with your blessing. As we go our separate ways. And we close our song today. In Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal. Number 76. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Lord, for our day, for teaching us from your word. Thank you that the essentials are found in the scriptures. We don't have to guess at those things. You tell us in the scriptures what true worship of you entails. You tell us what pleases you, and by example, what does not please you. So we don't have to guess at those things. But then you give us also leeway in terms of the circumstances. We're not bound to this building to worship. We don't have to have pews to worship. We don't have to have pianos and organs to worship you. We might even go to another church on occasion when we're visiting and they may do things a bit differently. But if the essentials are there, teaching of god's word the exaltation of jesus as savior the power of the holy spirit it can be a marvelous and wonderful time of growth and worship i pray lord that though our circumstances change we're getting older it's difficult to get about those are things sickness hits us in our families and so forth, and it all affects our worship and our times together. But I pray that you will keep us strong and keep us healthy, keep us loving you and loving one another, and demonstrating the love of Christ in our community for the glory of Christ, the outreach of the gospel. We pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen.